0: Please join me in prayer. Gracious God, by the presence of your Holy Spirit, bless this our proclamation of your word that we may receive the gift of your grace and share it with those whom we will meet on this journey to which we are called. Speak to us this day, for we, your servants, are listening. Amen. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, beginning with verse 9. The gospel of the Lord. When you pray, pray then like this Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Forgive us our debts and deliver us from evil. This is the gospel of the Lord. Lord Thank you, Jackie. In the Lord's Prayer, uh, Jesus teaches us to pray for deliverance from evil. And the Greek is actually has a definite article. It's deliver us from the evil. And uh, translators have been debating for 2,000 years whether that's talking about general bad stuff out there or something more personal because this, this same construction elsewhere in the New Testament is translated the evil one. And that is the way the Orthodox Church, the Greek-speaking church, uh, has always understood it, and I'm increasingly persuaded that that is what Jesus intends. Not just that we pray for deliverance from bad stuff, but specifically he's talking about an entity, an intelligence that we don't know much about, but it's real, and it's evil, and it's opposed to the gospel and opposed to the work of Christ in history. And so we're going to look at the 12th chapter of Revelation, which is sort of a picture book. Uh, it's sort of a children's sermon in its own right, where the veil is pulled back and and with imagery in a vision, Jesus shows the Apostle John a picture of what's really happening in human history, a snapshot of the time from Christ's first coming until his return. It was a message to Early believers, followers of Jesus, who were suffering immense hostility because of their faith, immense persecution. They were being pressured to be private about their faith, to not wear it publicly, to not talk about Jesus openly. Some of them lost family. They lost friends, and a great many of their pastors and other leaders died because they would not deny their testimony about Jesus. John was writing from a Roman penal colony on the island of Patmos where he was imprisoned for his faith when he received this vision of what's really going on behind the scenes. This is the 12th chapter of Revelation. I'll be reading from the uh, New International Version. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. And she was pregnant, and she cried out in pain, as she was about to give birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. And his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. And she gave birth to a son a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. And the great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled down to the earth and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice you heavens. And you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and woe to the earth and the sea. Because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to a place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time out of the serpent's reach. And then from the mouth of the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out from his mouth. And then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. imagery, But what do we see here? What we see is a dragon who has been defeated and he is furious and he is out to get You, if you follow Jesus. The story, it's imagery. You have a woman with... Uh, 12 stars on her head as a crown, probably representing the 12 tribes of Judah, her representing the people of God, though some commentators see her as Mary. Probably the 12 stars are signaling that this is believing Israel, giving birth to a Savior, a male child who rules the nations with a rod of iron. And the devil can't destroy Jesus. Jesus ascends to heaven to rule on our behalf, and yet the dragon then is cast down to earth. He loses his place where he can accuse you before for the face of God and so he comes after the woman, after the people of God and after all those who follow Jesus. Uh, yet again and again as the dragon attacks god's people the earth opens up to follow to swallow the flood you know wings of an eagle come to take the church away no matter how hard the evil one tries to destroy the people of god every drop of blood that he sheds of a believer only gives birth to a thousand new believers it's the course of human history between the first and coming and second coming of christ And this fits with everything else we learn in the New Testament. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5 to be sober-minded and watchful because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Paul says to the Corinthians, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. St. James says in James 4, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In Ephesians 4, in your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold because the bitterness you hold and resentment you hold against your spouse, parent, child, best friend, neighbor is opening the door saying, come on in, evil one. And so we're warned. Every single day Jesus is saying, when you pray, pray, deliver us from the evil one. I've got a massive target on me right now. Are you praying for your pastor that God would deliver your pastors from the evil one? Are you praying for your elders, for your staff, for your friends, parents? Are you praying for your children that God would deliver them from the evil one? You know, there are a thousand parenting books from Christian publishers and none of them has a chapter on praying for your children when prayer is the power of God to deliver. Because Jesus says, when you pray, pray, deliver us from evil, from the evil one. Channel that anxiety you feel into intercession saying, God, I don't know what to do with this, but you have the power. Bind the strong man, drive him away, deliver us from the evil one. Because though he's defeated with a faith that's already been sealed, the dragon has turned his attention towards every sincere follower of Jesus, those who hold to the testimony of Christ. There's a real bad guy. There's a real villain. There's a real antagonist. You know, who are... Think of children's stories. Think of narratives. Think of movies. Think of comic books. Uh, who are the most evil characters in the stories that we tell? Uh, in children's stories, uh, these are characters that are usually trying to kidnap children. Maybe they're trying to eat them. They're a really evil character, usually hates children. They're trying to kill the good guy. You know, William Sutcliffe explains in The Guardian, he says, if you are the dog protagonist of a children's book, someone probably wants to skin you. I am referring, of course, to Cruella Deville and her plans for those pesky hordes of Dalmatians. Cruella de Vil is the best proof that you can get away with being quite spectacularly nasty in stories for children. And also that your malevolence can be gobsmackingly obvious from the minute you appear on the page. The evil character in the story. It's usually the one that dislikes Christmas, like the white witch from Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, she wants to make sure it's always winter. Always winter, and yet never what? Never you saw the movie or read the book. She turns people to stone. She gives them sweets in order to emotionally manipulate them and turn them against their own friends. She lusts for power. Even her friends distrust her. And the evil character in a children's story, it's the one who sends children to bed without dinner. you know, you know How can you get any pudding if you don't eat your meat? You know, they're dictatorial, they're spoiled, they're mean, they're cruel, they're up to no good. It's like Lord Voldemort in Harry Potter uh, or, or maybe Bellatrix Lestrange. Uh, you know, you think, uh, uh, you, you think of, of Scar in The Lion King who killed his own brother, caused his brother's son to falsely believe that he had caused his own dad's death and to live with that guilt and shame and run away in fear. He, he ravaged the land, causing the other lions to live in abject poverty with lives of desperation and starvation. He was cruel. And then there's Lex Luthor, who's intent on ridding the world of the alien superman. Uh, or you could think of Prince Humperdinck in The Princess Bride with his sadistic six-fingered count, uh, Vizier Count Rugen who, who killed Inigo Montoya's father and needs to prepare to die. You know, <laughs> Prince Humperdinck, he tries to force Princess Buttercup to marry him so that he can start a war with a neighboring country, Gilder, by killing Buttercup and framing Gilder for her death. That's evil. That's not a good person. You know, think of the Joker. Uh, A criminal mastermind who seeks Batman's destruction. You know, he's a psychopath with warped sense of humor who uses his expertise in chemical engineering to develop poisonous or lethal concoctions and thematic weaponry, including razor-tipped playing cards, deadly joy buzzers, and acid-spraying lapel flowers. Or think of the evil queen in Snow White. The queen is Snow White's evil and vindictive stepmother who is obsessed with being the fairest in the land. The beautiful young princess Snow White evokes her sense of envy and so she designs a number of plans to kill Snow White through her witchcraft. She's narcissistic. She's cold. She's cruel. Uh, she's extremely vain. The evil queen, and there's a reason we call her the evil queen. Not the nice queen, not the mixed bag queen, not the so-so queen, not the gosh, we're all fallen queen, the evil queen, because she poisons Snow White. Or or think of the big bad wolf uh, who who eats grandma and then eats Little Red Riding Hood. Um, Or think of Maleficent in in Sleeping Beauty. You know, she's the self-proclaimed mistress of all evil, who after not being invited to a christening, a baptism, she curses The infant princess Aurora, she curses a baby girl, you know, that that she would prick her finger on the spindle of a spinning wheel and die before the sun sets on Aurora's 16th birthday. Maleficent is surrounded by her bestial army. She flies off in blind rages. She sends Sleeping Beauty into a spell of never-ending sleep. Uh, Or you could think um, of the emperor, Emperor Palpatine in Star Wars. Um, He's possessed by the dark side of the force. He's scheming. He's powerful. He's a good strategizer. He's evil to the core. He restored the Sith. He destroyed the Jedi Order. He slowly manipulated the political system of the Galactic Republic until he was named Supreme Chancellor and eventually Emperor, ruling the galaxy through fear and tyranny. He thought nothing of destroying uh, 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 Alderaan, even though it's a peaceful planet, uh, in order to maintain his his evil grip. Uh, Or you could think of the Wicked Witch of the West in The Wizard of Oz. Um, She is... Uh, the malevolent ruler of the land of Oz. In the book, she has only one eye, but it was powerful as a telescope, enabling her to see what was happening in her kingdom from her castle windows. She, she has a pack of wolves, a swarm of bees, a flock of crows. I don't have a flock of crows. Not even my evil side has a flock of crows. But on top of that, she's got an army of winkies and the enchanted golden cap, which compels her winged monkeys to obey her. They're creepy. You know, the witch enslaves Dorothy. She tries to force the cowardly lion into submission by starving him. You know, in all of these stories, that's good on that, in all of these stories we tell, over and over again, there's this powerfully wicked character who's gained incredible influence over the world, and their reign is one that robs us of freedom, uh, robs us of hope. It takes away our joy and leaves us in bondage and enslaved to our own shame. And despite their own evil, they're constantly looking for your weakness, prying into your weakness, getting into your head to expose you, to shame you, if possible, to destroy you. Now, there's a reason we keep telling the same story over and over and over again. In every civilization, in every language, on every continent, we keep telling this story. What if there's something to it? what if all of these images of evil are actually reflections of something real? You know, what if, There is a powerfully wicked character who has gained incredible influence over the world. What if he does rob people of their freedom, rob them of their hope, rob them of their joy? What if he really does work primarily in bondage and shame to expose you and to tell you that you stink, that you're worthless, that God couldn't love you, to make you want to go hide, make you want to be dead? Despite his own evil, what if he really is constantly looking for your weakness to expose you, shame you, destroy you. You, The Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of details. Jesus says to pray for deliverance from the evil one. And throughout scripture, whether it's James, whether it's Peter, whether it's Paul, they say that there is this entity. We don't have a lot of details. He's not pictured in a red jumpsuit. He doesn't have a pointy tail. He doesn't necessarily have horns. He definitely doesn't rule over hell. He doesn't Get that geographic space, whatever that is. Most of our cultural stories and images about them aren't really based on what the Bible actually says, but these biblical documents do indicate there is a reality there. The Bible describes a powerful intelligence which was created by God but fell, fell from grace, fell from glory, and is now opposed to Jesus, a fallen angel that that keeps the world in bondage and is opposed to the work of Christ. There are intelligences. There's more to God's world than is dreamt of in our philosophy. These things have an agenda that doesn't prioritize our own well-being. Look at human experience. Germany in the 1930s was the most advanced economy the world had ever seen. German universities were the most sophisticated and the most progressive. German design led the world. German education, German technology, German architecture, German music, German culture. And then this happened in the middle of it. How could such image bearers of God with such intelligence, such sophistication, such advancement, systematically murder 9 million people in concentration camps? I mean, to murder is certainly within human nature in our fallen, damaged state, but to harness the best technology, the most sophisticated logistics, to commit genocide on an industrial scale, not just in Germany, but in every other country they could reach, it raises the question of whether there was something more going on here. Is there evil? Is it real? Does it exist? What if there is a force at work behind the scenes, taking our normal human fallenness, our normal greed, our normal possessiveness, our normal resentment, and worsening them so much more to the point where they could actually be labeled as demonic? Why is it so hard to have a consistent life of prayer? Jesus tells you every time you pray, pray for deliverance from the evil one. Why do you have the worst arguments with your spouse on Sunday mornings before church? Why does it seem like the most likely sign that God is in something is the fact that 15 roadblocks suddenly appear to almost keep it from happening, but not quite. Why years ago when a local seminary saw a season of real gospel renewal and revitalization, a a captured vision of radical grace when it began seeing growth and and lives transformed and churches transformed through its grace-filled pastors, why was it at that moment that a student was murdered on campus? Why did a pastor in Virginia once warn me that as soon as God actually started using me, my car would break down regularly and I would have multiple consecutive health crises? And why have I spent the last five years hunting down a half dozen different diagnoses? Why is it that we don't have to look for temptation, but it seems actively to seek us out Why does that voice in your mind, that one that accuses you and leaves you locked in a prison of shame, why is it so loud and so powerful and so out of proportion to reality? There is one who is evil in opposition to God and in opposition to his son, Jesus Christ. And in this passage, he's described as a dragon, as the serpent of old, identifying him as the liar in the Garden of Eden who tempted Eve and Adam. And his main ministry, we see, is to accuse he is the accuser of our brothers in verse 10, who accuses them before our God day and night. And this means his main battlefield is the battlefield of shame. Guilt says, I did something bad. Shame is a different voice. Feelings of guilt are saying that was a bad thing you did. Feelings of shame are about your person. You're defective. You're not right. You're messed up. You're disgusting. If people knew the real you, they would never accept you. They, they recoil at you. Because what's inside of you is so ugly, so dark. God could never love you. You could never measure up. You're not a valid person. That's shame. It's that sense of wanting to hide, of wanting to die. And this is very, very different from the Holy Spirit's work of convicting us of sin. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, he usually starts with a question. Gus, was that very kind? Could you have done that differently? Might you have hurt that person's feelings? Do you need to check? Do you need to say something? Do you need to maybe apologize? That's convicting by the Holy Spirit. Shame says you're a loser. Shame doesn't point you to Jesus. The Holy Spirit points you to Jesus. There's a dragon. He's been kicked out of heaven. He's really mad about that. And he's coming after us, his church, the family of Jesus. That's the bad news. Now, the good news is that God has given us the power to defeat him. It says here, They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. God has given you incredible power in your story, in your testimony. What is a testimony? A testimony is your profession of faith that Jesus has rescued you. Uh, It can look like a million different things, like when... When you're in the office and a coworker is late on an assignment, they can't get it to you in time, and that affects you, and they're like, I'm so sorry about this. I feel so bad. I wish I should have gotten this to you. And you can respond by saying, don't worry. God has forgiven me bigger stuff through Jesus than, than this a thousand times over. I'm not judging anybody. You've just shared your testimony. You've just, in a non-threatening way, talked about how Jesus rescued you. You've just talked about how you're a sinner. You, 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 and yet Jesus forgave you. You're testifying your faith to him that Jesus is your savior and God uses even your failings, even our weaknesses, our regrets to shape our story, to weave us into a story of redemption. And all of that is is so that your unique story can be put on to use in battle on the battlefield against this dragon whose, whose weapon is shame and your weapon is the gospel. Jesus saved me. He forgave all of my sins. You want to talk to me about how shameful and awful sinner I am? Talk to Jesus because I don't bear it anymore. Down the office, second office on the left. That's testimony. That's going to war with the gospel of Jesus against the dragon and his shaming. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, we've been prepared by the artisan for very specific work, which means your race, your gender, your gender. Your skills, your gifts, even your sufferings, even your problems are all ways in which the great artist has crafted you into somebody. And there are certain things only you can do in this world. We all have a place on this battlefield. He says there are certain aspects of God's mission that only you can do. There are some hands that only you can hold. There are some demons only you can cast out in more ways than one. There are some needs that only you can fill. There are some people that only you can reach because you are the work of the ultimate artist. Our lives are not thrown together, but rather we are sent out by God with our testimony. Your story has incredible power. They overcame him by the word of their testimony. I mean, you want to get a dragon fleeing, you can punch him right between the eyes with your testimony every time you name Jesus as your Savior, every time you talk to a friend about your faith in Christ, every time you talk about Jesus who forgives sins, Uh, every time you do that, you are clocking the evil one right between the eyes. And as you're doing it, Jesus is saying, keep praying. Deliver us from the evil one. Resist the devil, James says, and he will flee. Your story doesn't have to win a Nobel Prize in literature. It's just a story about how God has always loved you, about how God forgave your critical judging heart, about regrets that he's redeemed. Every follower of Jesus has a story, a testimony, that Jesus rescued me. And the boring ones are some of the most powerful because everyone can relate. Ravi Zacharias says during the course of nearly 40 years, I've traveled to virtually every continent and seen or heard some of the most amazing testimonies of God's intervention in the most extreme circumstances. I've seen hardened criminals touched by the message of Jesus Christ and their hearts turned toward good in a way that no amount of rehab could have accomplished. I've seen ardent followers of radical belief systems turn from being violent, brutal terrorists to becoming mild and tender-hearted followers of Jesus Christ. I've seen nations where the gospel was banned and silenced by governments, and yet nevertheless their whole nation is conquered by the ethos and mindset of Jesus he says, in the middle of the 20th century, after destroying all of the Christian seminary libraries in the country, Chairman Mao declared that Christianity had been permanently removed from China, never to return. And then on Easter Sunday of 2009, the leading English-language newspaper in Hong Kong published a picture of Tiananmen Square on page one. Only the, 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 the giant frame painting of Chairman Mao was replaced by a giant painting of Jesus Christ, and the words across the front page said, Christ is risen. He says, I've seen, I've been in the Middle East and marveled at the commitment of young people who have risked their lives to attend a Bible study. I talked to CEOs of large companies in the Islamic world who testify that they have seen Jesus in visions and dreams and they wonder what it all means. The British atheist A.N. Wilson, who for decades was known for his scathing attacks on Christianity, celebrated Easter for the first time 10 years ago at a church with a group of other church members proclaiming that the story of Jesus of the Gospels is the only story that makes sense out of life and its challenges. He says, my own return to faith has surprised no one more than myself. My belief has come about in large measure because of the lives and examples of people I have known, not the famous, not the saints, but friends and relations who have lived and have faced death in light of the resurrection story or in quiet acceptance that they have a future even after they die. Matthew Paris wrote an article entitled, As an Atheist, I Truly Believe Africa Needs God. He talked about even though he doesn't believe in God, he traveled throughout Malawi and he saw the Christians establishing schools and hospitals and orphanages. And he said, how could anybody see this and not think it's a good thing? But it's the lives of these ordinary Christians, the word of their testimony and their words and their deeds, incredibly powerful. Through that, we overcome the evil one by the word of our testimony. Um, You know, when you share your story with somebody, you don't think that much is happening because you just hear your little voice it's like in the lion king who's seen the lion king yeah whole generation scarred by uh, um by that movie um you know that there's that point in which simba's still very young and uh uh, and and the hyenas are, are attacking him and his and his girl and they're running, and they're chasing this big pack of hyenas. And they're going to eat them. You know, we're going to eat some baby lion. And and they get end up back backed up against a wall of stone. And they're cornered, and there's little tiny Simba. And the hyenas are powering over top of him. And he lets out a little, like, and they're like, oh, look at the kitty. Was that your roar? Do it again. And I'll oh, do it again, do it again. Then he opens his mouth and you're a Roar, as his father comes leaping over top and pins the hyenas to the ground. That's what it's like when you talk about Jesus. Because it's your little voice, but over and above and through your little voice, there is a more powerful voice binding the strong man and setting captives free. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. We've talked about the word of the testimony. Let's talk now about the blood of the lamb, because that is the power of your rescuer. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb. That's Christ's substitutionary atonement. See, forgiveness, forgiveness always has a price. You know, if you were to get in your, you know, gold line edition Hummer two um, gallon per mile vehicle and you were to start it up and you were to roll over top of my little fiat 500 we've got a picture of that um the reality is i can take you to court and make you pay for it or i can say don't worry about it i got it i can forgive you but if i forgive that then does the fiat 500 magically come back together no it's still crunched somebody's got to pay for the forgiveness And when you forgive somebody, you're paying their debt down for them. And when Jesus forgives us, he is taking your debt and my debt and shouldering it. And he then has to pay for it. That's why he went to the cross. That's good. Uh, That's what he died for in order to pay your debt and my debt down. It's the, the blood of the lamb, which means you no longer carry your guilt. And so the shame no longer has any power to crush you because Jesus has carried your shame and now clothed you with the righteousness that he himself brought in his own life. And by that blood, he ensured the dragon's impending defeat. Because every one of those stories we tell, every one of those stories about an evil villain whose victims are crying out in distress, each of those stories about the evil character, the intelligence who has power to influence and rob victims of their hope and their freedom and their joy, every one of those stories has a hero who stands up and takes on the evil one at great personal risk. Because the Joker, he has to face Batman. We got Batman? Yeah. Lex Luthor has to face Superman. Prince Humperdinck has to face Wesley, who loves his Princess Bride. The Wicked Witch has to face Dorothy. The Big Bad Wolf has to face a hunter who comes to the rescue with a big, sharp axe and cuts open the sleeping wolf so that Little Red Riding Hood and her grandma can live. The Emperor has to face a Jedi by the name of Luke Skywalker. Cruella Deville and her henchmen have to face a Dalmatian named Pongo, who's determined to rescue his little puppies and destroy Cruella's fur business. Scar has to face an adult Simba, who returns to Pride Rock to confront, overthrow, and destroy him. Maleficent has to face Sleeping Beauty's one true love, Prince Philip, who returns from captivity to destroy her, and then he stoops down to his love and he kisses her awake. Voldemort has to face Harry, and in trying to destroy Harry, ends up being destroyed himself. Spoiler alert, sorry. The White Witch, I won't tell you how. The White Witch has to face a resurrected Aslan. And after Aslan sheds his blood for the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, the stone table is cracked into. Winter finally ends and we sons and daughters of Adam and Eve are forgiven and the power of the witch over us is destroyed. We keep telling the same basic story over and over again. It is written in the human heart this sense that the world is not what it ought to be. We're in bondage to an alien power. We cannot be released ourselves and we are longing for a redemption redeemer to come from outside this world to rescue us and to destroy the evil one liberating us from our bondage and making the world right again. We keep telling this story, friends, because it's written in the human heart as fallen creatures made by God. It's because the Bible is actually true. It's the one true story that all of these other stories are prefiguring. It's because that's what our souls are wired for. It's a picture of the reality of this cosmos in which we live that longs for its liberation from its bondage to decay. Friends, it's a true story. All these stories pointing us to the real story what we long for most, what we need most, is that our Creator in His mercy and compassion would actually come and do what Jesus in His mercy and compassion actually did because Harry Potter can't save the world. That's the reality. He's a sinner just like me and you. He needs a rescuer too. Superman needs a savior. Batman needs a savior. Wesley definitely needs a savior. Even sweet little Dorothy needs a savior. Luke Skywalker needs a savior. But Jesus is the real Harry Potter who faced down Voldemort and who's own sacrifice ricochets backward to bring about the destruction of the evil one himself. Jesus is the real Batman who defeated the real Joker. Jesus is the real Wesley who defeated Humperdinck so that he could ride off with his princess bride, the church. Jesus is the real hunter who splits open the big bad wolf to set his captives free. Jesus is the real pongo who threw caution to the wind to throw himself against the villains so he could bring home the puppies he loves. Jesus is the real Dorothy who saw you burning and threw a bucket of water that saved you and melted the witch. Jesus is the real Superman who defeated the evil genius Jesus is the real Luke Skywalker who risked everything in order to liberate Darth Vader's soul from the dark side to destroy the evil emperor and bring the galaxy back into balance. Jesus is the real Prince Philip who defeated Maleficent so that he could stoop down and kiss you back to life. Jesus is the real Simba, the real lion king who's returned to pride rock to overthrow the evil one and bring life and joy back to the pride. And Jesus, friends, is the real Aslan who came and sacrificed himself on a stone altar to forgive the sins of the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, to destroy the white witch and to thaw your frozen world to bring an end to our never-ending winter. Friends, if you have Jesus, you are covered by the blood of the Lamb and you have the word of your testimony and you have nothing to be ashamed of because Christ has died, He is risen, and He is coming again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, we worship and praise You, our King and our God. And we ask, Lord... That you would gather with us today as we walk with you, as your family, as your people, with the testimony that you have given us of the power of the blood of the Lamb. We consecrate to you the elements on this table and ask that you would bless them. In Jesus' name, amen.